This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Right then, Ryan, welcome to the show. I was going to ask you actually before we record, and I think after listening to your podcast, I know how to pronounce your surname. Is it Ogilvy? Perfect. Spot on. Perfect. In my mind, I was thinking Ogilvy, but then yeah. I heard it at Ogilvy. I bet you get that all the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, 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 if I call a call center, um, they'll, they, they'll try pronounce it and just fumble their way through it normally. <laughs> Ogilvy. Yeah. <laughs> To be fair, having worked in a call center, if it's an outbound call, you have no idea who you're speaking to until they pick up. And yeah. you've got a split second. Second to actually, yeah, yeah, so yeah. If, no, if yeah, you can't, yeah. No, and, 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 and do you know what? I never actually even correct them because they've tried their best to obviously pronounce my name. And, and yeah, so yeah, I, I never put them in an awkward, awkward position and say, no, that's not how you pronounce it. Because, yeah. yeah, some people do. But let's say, um, I'll give you the floor now to sort of explain your background, who you are. We're here to talk about your new podcast, Who is the Cheese Wire Killer? But give my audience a bit of an insight into your background, who you are, what you do. So I am an audio creative, if you like. Um, So basically what I do for a job is I write and produce radio commercials. I've been involved in radio now for well over 25 years and audio in general for over 25 years. And that's that, that. That's basically what what I've been doing. I've always had an interest in podcasts, and that's how I came about to actually recording and producing this podcast. How did you get into the audio game? I guess because that's it's a bit of a niche industry to get into, right? Because there's a lot of technicality behind it, and you've got to be quite clever. I would say. <laughs> how did you actually get into? And writing the ads and stuff really fascinated me. How'd you get into that? Do you know what? I I, I just, I kind of fell into it. I, I really did fall into it, actually, because I fell in love with radio when I was still at school. I absolutely loved radio. Um, and I just loved the how personal it was. I loved how you could just sit in a room, put your headphones on and be transformed into another world. And bear in mind, this is, this is going back 25 years before podcasts weren't even a thing. And um, I just fell into radio and I actually wanted to become a radio presenter, a DJ, if you like. And that didn't work out for me. I wasn't particularly good, good at it. And then I was sit. I was actually at a wedding one one day, and I, and and it just shows you how just things can work out. I was sitting at, at a wedding one day and a, a, a producer was there from who worked for STV, who was um um a, a um the a television station, and um they were looking for a commercial producer to produce radio commercials, uh, sorry, sorry to, to produce TV commercials for them. And they said to somebody sitting next to them, I don't suppose you know anybody who would be good at this job, who I could employ. And the person said, yeah, him across there and pointed to me across the table. So off the back of that, I went, my first job actually producing commercials was for television. And the thing about TV is, is that when you produce TV commercials, you might get one or three, one or two projects every couple of months. 
But with radio and with audio, it's so much faster. It's a much faster turnaround. So I loved working for TV, but but I very quickly wanted to go back to my passion, which was which was audio and produce radio commercials. And the beauty of radio is it's theatre of the mind. If I want to film a TV commercial in the Caribbean, you've got to take a film crew across there and film it. But for radio, it's a native voiceover. It's a piece of music. It's sound effect. And you can transport the listener anywhere. So I've always been, I've always loved radio. And that's really how I fell into doing that. The real reason we're here though, Ryan, is to talk about who is the cheese wire killer. So this is your five-part podcast focusing on the still unsolved murder of George Murdoch in Aberdeen, the taxi driver. Now, on British Murders, we have briefly looked at this story when Dawn from Scottish Murders came on and told us the story. What I was interested in before we get into the actual podcast and the story and the production side is how this actually came about, because it actually came about on the back of your real job, right? It was on the back of an advert? Yeah, it was. So... So, so to put to put it in context, I love podcasts. I consume at least four or five a day, and I've always been interested in producing my own my own podcast. But I've never ever found the right subject matter for it. And and then one day I got a brief, and the salesperson said, "This is good. This is a strange one. We've never had one like this before. But this brief is actually looking for witnesses to come forward." or anyone with information about an unsolved murder from 1983. And and immediately I was quite taken aback by it because I've never ever done a commercial like that ever before. So then I spoke to the family of the victim, George Murdoch, and um, I spoke to them and they gave me an overview of the case. Now, I'm, I'm born and bred in Aberdeen, so I've always been aware of the case because it's an infamous case. It's one of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. Um, so I was aware to an extent that a taxi driver had been, had been murdered in the 80s and that murder had been unsolved and that somehow a cheese, cheese wire had been had been used in the attack. And that's where my knowledge completely stopped. So when the family told me about it in, in a lot more detail than that, I said to them at the time, have you ever considered creating a, a producing a podcast about this? And they immediately said, yes, we have. And police, the police have actually have actually suggested that as a way that we could promote, not promote, that, that's the wrong word, but a way that we can get the case out there to try and try and discover new leads. And but they said they were honest and they said, but we would we would know we would have no idea how to actually go about doing that. And I said to them at the time, well, I've worked in audio for the past 25, uh, 25 years. I've never produced a true crime podcast before, but I would love to meet you and, and see if we could maybe work together um, and and and, and and do something. So once you've almost, I don't, I can't think of any other way to say it. Once you've secu- secured the gig, right? which sounds awful and trivial because it's about the murder of this poor family's beloved, you know, and they called him Dodd, George Murdoch. Yeah. Once you've got the go-ahead, the green light, maybe that's a nicer way of saying it. What's your 
plan for this? Because going into a podcast, having never done something, yes, you've worked in audio, but it's quite a different animal producing a podcast. Now, yours is a serialized podcast in that all five episodes focus on one case, which I can't relate to. So I'm curious to figure out how you planned, how many episodes there were going to be, what was going to be in each episode, who you were going to speak to, how much planning did you put into it? I did a lot of planning. Go back to what you put when you first what you first said just now, Stu, about I got the green light. I did get the green light from the family. The family did give me permission, but just 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 to clarify, I took no payment from the family. This was a mutual, mutually beneficial relationship between myself and George's family. They wanted to get a podcast out there. And I wanted to produce a podcast, help them, but also, and I was very honest from them from up from the I was very upfront. I'm doing this to help you, but I'm also doing doing this for my personal reasons because I want to produce, produce a podcast. And their immediate reaction was, well, that makes more sense to us because if you've got a personal gain from this, you're going to give it give it as much attention as you possibly can, which, which I did. But to go back to your question, yes, it took a it, it took a lot of planning. It took a lot of research. It took a lot of planning. And that that really evolved. When I first said yes to it, I had no idea whether this was going to be one episode or three episodes. And actually, very quickly, I thought it would, would fall into three episodes. But as I started planning it and different, different leads and different things came out of, of my interviews... There was so much content there. There were so much different avenues there to explore that it evolved into a five ep- episode podcast. And it might not even be it might not even be, be the last one. I mean, it's still an ongoing case. So there still might be more episodes to come going forward. But there was there was so many fascinating elements to this case that it just deserved to be it, it needed to be a five episode podcast. But it was it was very um it was all about about doing the interviews and then collating all the information into chronological order that people would would easily understand because this case does jump about there's been lead there's been things investigated since for the past 40 years so it was it was almost a challenge to try and put it put it into an order that would that would make sense to the listener and we all. I mean, it's a very engaging story. I mean, it's it's an incredible story, as tragic as it is. It it is an interesting story because of, because of the sheer mystery that that survives the case. So you've the good thing about this podcast, and it's really well produced, by the way, is that you not only speak to members of Dodd's family, but you also speak to witnesses, you speak to experts, you speak to officers in there. I'm curious if you had any previous experience interviewing people, and if this was your first time, how did you find that experience? Um, I think I probably had. I think I, I was prior to, to to this call with you. I, I was thinking about this last night, and I think if I'm honest with myself, I think I probably had a huge amount of imposter syndrome during recording this because I'm not a journalist. I'm not an investigative reporter, but I kind of felt that I fell into that role during this podcast. And when I was younger, I would have loved to be have to become a journalist, but I didn't follow the route of university, 
I went straight into into radio really from 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 school. So I kind of missed that opportunity to be a journalist. And nowadays, I think that there are journalists that that, that we listen to this that will think, how, how dare he say this? But nowadays, because of podcasts, because of social medias, media even, anyone can really report on something, whether you're qualified or not. And that's just a fact. Of, uh, and, and I get that there are journalists out there who are incredible writers, who are incredible broadcasters, but there is an opportunity for anyone now to share to share their opinion, but interview people. I actually found, I found it actually quite easy because I think that, and and I'll tell you why, because the first people that I interviewed with the case was George's niece, sorry, George's nephew, Alex and his wife, Rubina. And they completely put me at ease as to, as to that I could ask anything at all. They were very open. They were very upfront. They were very honest. Um, there was there, there was no area that I that 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 they wouldn't allow me to explore or speak to, even though how 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 devastated and how upset they still are, even forty years later. But it was really important to them that we got Dodd's story across, and also that we got the story of Jesse, his 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 widow, um, because. For Dodd, obviously, it was horrendous because he was obviously attacked, viciously attacked. What he went through that night must have been absolutely horrendous beyond belief. But the sad fact is that after that, Dodd was gone. He didn't have to live through the nightmare that his wife Jessie did, and it was her that really did. And it's nice because it's not nice. That's that's probably the wrong word. But it was great to hear you call George Dodd just now. Because that's what that's what his family called him, Dodd. Nobody else called him Dodd. It was just his family and close close friends. Everybody else would have called him George. But to hear someone call him by his name, his affectionate name, just shows you that hopefully people out there will have connected in some way to what happened to him. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now back to the story. What I found interesting was hearing the various theories, I suppose, from the people you spoke to. So you'd speak to an officer and they'd think it was, let's say, a robbery gone wrong, right? But then you might you might speak to an expert in whatever field and they might say it doesn't quite add up with that because kind of who walks around with a cheese wire? But then there's debates on maybe that was a self-defense thing that they just happened to have on them. But then... There's also, the this is going into the actual murder, probably too deep that I need to, but the fact that after the cheese wire incident, the, the Dodd was manually strangled, right, on the ground, which can take up to two, three minutes. It's not like in the movies where 10 seconds and, and they're done. It's not like that. So that's what I found really interesting was hearing the different opinions from everyone. Did you find that speaking to different people, was it altering how you thought you were going to put across this? Did you... Because I'm imagining speaking to one person and getting one narrative in your mind, but then speaking to another one that might contradict it and you actually thinking, hmm, how, how did you amalgamate it all, I guess, is my question. If I'm honest, I'm probably still trying to reach a conclusion. And I don't think there is a conclusion. I don't think that we'll ever know that until we actually find out who actually was responsible for this, if we ever do. Because you're right. When I spoke to the police, one of one of their theories was 
that this was a robbery gone wrong. When I spoke to one of the psychologists, they thought it could be somebody that suffered from PTSD. So one of their theories was that George could have completely innocently said something that triggered something, which would have made sense because the person just didn't rob him. They took a cheese wire at his throat. George escaped from the vehicle and the person then continued to attack him and then strangled him to death. It's just... And the police and the journalists and everybody that I've spoken to have have, have more or less said said the same thing. It's, It's very... It's a very, very strange way to carry out, to carry out a murder. Somebody wasn't carrying a knife or something that people would kind of associate with a murder, but a cheese wire. Why was that person carrying a cheese wire? And there are all sorts of theories again about why that person would have carried a cheese wire. Why are they carrying it? Because they intended to carry out an attack on somebody. At the time of the murder in the 80s, there were actually several professions that would have used cheese wires people at the local art college would have used cheese wires people fitting windscreens would have used cheese wires potentially too obviously people in kitchens and hotel restaurants hotel kitchens would have used cheese wires so there's there's all sorts of different theories and yeah and and I, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's not been solved to this day yet because there are so many, there are more questions than there are than there are answers. It's definitely, a, sadly, a crime of its time. I think because in the early eighties, you've got the lack of sort of CCTV. No one had smartphones back then. No one's every single move was recorded. So there's that as well. But also touching on the the cheese wire as a method of prior to the strangulation of murder attempt hasn't been used since which was brought up on the podcast as well but that was sort of clarified as being well it didn't work so it makes sense as to why that didn't happen again so the the insights from the experts were were really interesting you mentioned in there that there were so alex wasn't it alex and rabina that they were yeah. so so welcoming when you went to visit them how long did it take between this idea being put forward to that initial meeting taking place? Um, it probably took just over about a month, I think, about a month to six weeks, roughly. And between that time, there were a lot of a lot of emails, a lot of telephone conversations, because they obviously wanted... They wanted the right person to produce a podcast for them. They wanted somebody that wasn't going to... Well, well... I'm perhaps putting words into their mouth, but I thought it was important for me to, I think it was important for for me to reassure them that I wasn't there to sensationalise it, that I wasn't there purely for my own gains. I was there to support them also. So they were, I wouldn't say they they were suspicious, but they were just, nervous probably that the story was going to be handled in in a way that that, that they wanted it to because people are obviously listening to the podcast i'm getting great feedback about it people are listening to it um and it had to be engaging but it also had to tick alex and rubina's boxes 
that it would move, it would in some way, hopefully, move the case forward. So, what was it like when it came to the final say on on the episodes? Then was it a case of you would send them off for them to review? Did they have any pointers? Anything they ever wanted you to retract, or anything they wanted you to add in? Um, no, no, they were. Compl- I, I sent them. I, I'd have complete card say that agreement all along was that I was going to send them each episode prior to be prior to be to going live, and there was only. It only came back with one piece of feedback, and that's because I, I got the I, I got it wrong. I said it was two. That I think it was. I think I said that Rabina had two brothers and one sister. It was actually two sisters, two sisters and one brother. That's the only thing they came back with. It was nothing at all that they wanted changed or amended. So they were brilliant from that point of view. I also shared the podcast with the senior investigating officer at Police Scotland, James Calendar, and he came back with a couple of bits of of um factually incorrect but small things like i like it was the wrong title that i used for the initial detective that handled the case so nothing that altered the actual story but um but but it was important throughout this i haven't I, i've worked with the family and with the police so this wasn't me as an investigative journalist going out there to actually do my own thing and kind of go rogue if you like it was always important that this podcast was first of all engaging because I want I want people to listen to it and I think it's a story that deserves to be told but also a podcast that that supported what the family and what Police Scotland want to achieve and that's obviously discovering what ha- what happened to George that night and more importantly who did that to George that night I wanted to ask you about a recent development, I think it was around about the 40th anniversary, where it says, just drug myself memory here, police revealed they've now what they believe is the, the DNA profile of Dodd's killer. And this was back in, I think, September time, or that's when the article came out at least. Yeah. What do you know, what do you know about that? This, was a, this, this is a huge step forward in the case. Because up until now, they haven't had a DNA sample. They released this information on the 40th anniversary of the murder to coincide with the campaign and to generate extra publicity. But the police and this is this discovery and this huge step forward was really down to the incredible work that the forensic scientists have um, have put into this case. I've been lucky enough to to speak to two of them, Sarah and James, who both worked on on this case and and are still working on it. And for almost 20 years now, Sarah has been developing the DNA of the killer, which a lot of what she said to me in the interview completely went over my head because it was very scientific and very very impressive, impressive at the same time. But they've actually had this DNA since 2018. So they had it for five years before they released this null, this information to the public. Because what they did in between discovering the DNA and announcing it was is that they used that DNA to rule out all the possible suspects that they had. So there were between 50 and 60 possible suspects that names had come forward. And only once they ruled them all out, then they released the information to the public. And 
James Callender, the, the, the senior investigating officer in the case, he's always said that the DNA isn't a silver bullet to find the killer because without a match, the DNA is useless, if you like. They need to have somebody to match that to. But what this does allow to happen now is it allows, if somebody out there thinks it was one of the relatives that committed this murder, they can then now say to the police, and the police can can check that and categorically say yes or no. There's no grey area. There's not going to be this case hang this investigation hang over anyone's head. If somebody out there is going to do the right thing and come forward and and give the police the information about who they think it was, the police can now rule that person in or out very quickly which is a great position for them to be in. But at the same time, it still needs somebody to come forward with their suspicion. Hmm. It's all very interesting. And the first episode of the pod dropped on the 40th anniversary, right? September 29th. And that was obviously intentional. And I can understand why you've done that. And you mentioned that the feedback you've been getting is good. And there's, it's open to potential more episodes hopefully fingers crossed this will eventually get solved and i know that rubina and alex were saying that you know it's not even a case of wanting to have someone arrested or sent down they just want the closure of finding out what happened right absolutely this person committed this murder in 1983 at the time they were thought to be teen, to be between 20 and 30 years old so let's go in the middle let's say they're 20 let's say they were 25 at the time that would mean that they were in their mid-60s. Now, because this person committed a murder so aggressive, so gruesome, it's fair to say that this person may not have had the best mental health or the best lifestyle. So there's every chance now this person could no longer be with us. But ideally, in an ideal world, yes, the family would like to see somebody be punished and somebody to be sentenced for what they did. But the family, both the family and the police, are completely realistic that this person may be dead now. But if that is the case, yeah, it's still hugely important for them just to put this matter to rest, just to have a name, just to have an idea of why this happened. Because that's another thing too. It's it's that well, George was a very normal person, there was there was nothing in his background at all that suggested that he was involved in anything at all criminal or he was just a very very normal nice guy and the police obviously did look at his background when they first took over this case there was nothing there at all so if there, there's a huge mystery of the family and Alex himself George's nephew does does nephew he's always said he just wants to know why it happened why this person do what they did and unless somebody comes forward this the the sad the harsh reality is we might just never know it's a mystery because he was the kind of guy that would and he said this to jesse right that if he ever got robbed he'd be the first guy to give his money over it's not worth it he would comply with the robber it makes you wonder if this was possibly a, a mistaken identity case. Has that ever been a thought that's floated in your mind? 
it's been, it's, it's been, it, yeah, no, it, it absolutely is. It absolutely is a, is a, is a thought that, that, that's what went through my head. No one's ever said that. No one from the police have ever suggested that. I mean, if it was, a, if it was a case of mistaken identity, what, what I've thought since then is, since having a thought is, is if it was a, if it was a case of mistaken identity, why did that person not follow it up and murder who they were actually after, after that? So there's that doubt in my head. Um, and every time I think about this case, my opinion changes of what could have happened that night. And I think that's why, I mean, I've had a lot of people email me and contact me through social media and lots of listeners have actually come forward with their, with their um, analysis or their theory about what, about what, what, about what may have happened to George and the police I mean, the fact that police are still investigating this case 40 years later is a huge testament to them. The fact the family are still actively trying to pursue, trying to get answers, is a huge thing for them to take on and, and to continue to do so. But there is a huge amount of mystery around this that um and I think and I think that's why. The public, and not just in Aberdeen. I mean, looking through who's listened to this podcast, there's people all over the world, America, Australia, Canada, Spain, Finland, all over the world that have listened to it. Now, these may be people that were from originally from Aberdeen, or it might be people that are just, I mean, if, if you listen to two, if you do listen to True Crime podcasts, now people listen to this podcast right now will be fans of True Crime podcasts. This isn't a murder that is, that is, um, that is, it's exclusively for Aberdeen because in 1983, oil and gas was huge in Aberdeen. Oil was discovered in the in the North Sea in the late 70s, and so in the 80s there were literally thousands of people from all over the world coming in and out of Aberdeen. So there has been another, another theory that the person that committed this crime might not even have been from Aberdeen. They may have been. But they could have theoretically they could have been from anywhere. I mean, at that time, hotels in Aberdeen were more or less fully booked all the time because there was so much interest and so many people having business trips in and out of the city. So there is a chance this person could have been from outside Aberdeen. Right. Well, if anyone listening does have any information, then I put this on the episode I did on George with Dawn. Uh, contact the police on 101 Crime Stoppers 0800 555 and of course there is the Facebook appeal page so if you're on Facebook it's called Appeal for Information Aberdeen Taxi Driver Murder 1983 George Murdoch so head over there and just get in touch if you know something a reminder of Ryan's podcast who is the cheese wire killer you can find that anywhere I think you're on all the all the services and stuff so I'll put a link in the episode anyway and I appreciate you coming on and promoting the podcast. Everyone, give it a listen. Any final thoughts, Ryan? No, that's just it. I mean, I mean, I mean, the more people that listen to the podcast, the more chance we have of finding finding this killer. Um, and um, and fingers crossed, fingers crossed. The next time I speak to you, Stu, will be um, will be um, on the back of the sixth episode where we announce and or reveal and we look into actually who committed this horrendous murder. But it's a fascinating story. If you like, if you like true crime, please give it a listen. Thank you. Cool. Thanks again, and for everyone listening, I will see you next time.